everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Motherkind Podcast. It is me, your host, Zoe. I am so happy that you are here. My guest this week is Dr. Zoe Williams. Dr. Zoe is a GP and author, and you might know her as this morning's resident doctor. Zoe was so honest in this episode about her own experiences of motherhood how lonely she felt in those early months and why she found herself thinking, I just can't do this. We also talk about how she thinks we need to change how we care for women's health in postpartum and actually women's health across the board. She gives some really powerful and surprising tips actually on how to advocate for our own health, how to get the most out of a doctor's appointment, whether that's for us or our children. And we talk at the end about her incredible new book for teenage girls, which I absolutely love. I hope you love this episode. Here it is. Oh, Zoe, I'm so excited to welcome you on the podcast. We hadn't met before, and then you hosted a really fun panel at the podcast show. And I just loved your energy, loved you. And I was like, we've got to get Zoe on the podcast. So here we are. How bizarre was that? There were, hang on, let me think, one, two, three, four, five people on the stage and three of us were called Zoe because <laughs> Zoe Harbin was there as well. Loved it. I know. It is a great name. It is a great name. Everyone's always like, what does it mean? Like, it means life. I know. It means life. Like, what better meaning is for a name than that? I quite like as well, although I do get called Zoe. Do you get called Zoe? I quite like that it's quite hard to shorten. It's kind of like Zoe or Zoe, done. Yeah, and I don't mind Zoe. I quite like Zoe as well. My brother used to call me Zobs, though. Didn't like that. <laughs> yeah, my mum used to call me Zebedee. Didn't like that. Random, why make it longer? Well, I think people have to lengthen the name to give you a nickname, don't they? So, yeah, it is a great name. So you've just released a podcast, which is partly what we were talking about on the panel. How is it going? How does it feel to add podcaster to your list of long accolades and achievements? It feels really good, actually. I mean, this is the world now, isn't it? This is how people like to access and consume information. And it's been really great getting to grips with it because it's just a different conversation. You know, it's unfiltered, unedited. And I feel like people, when they're in that podcast space, they're just much more themselves. It's that freedom to just talk freely. It's almost as if loads of people aren't going to listen and you're just having a chat, isn't it? Which means it's different to TV, it's different to radio, it's different to anything else I've done. So yeah, the podcast is called The Doctor Will Hear You Now. And it's me speaking to people who are well-known, who have been affected by common chronic conditions in the way that you know, it's me as a doctor, I often get 10 minutes with a patient. It's me getting that deeper understanding of what it's actually like to live with a cancer diagnosis or a heart condition or through menopause. And in the hope really that everybody listening will therefore have a better understanding, we can be kinder, we can be more understanding, more empathetic and live in a kinder world. You know, I think it's understanding, isn't it? The moment that you can understand something on a deeper, more nuanced level, it unlocks compassion, it reduces judgment. I just find that across the board. It's just such a powerful way because we are living in this world now where we do have access to so much more. And I think that's an incredible thing, isn't it? Yeah. And I'm aware as well that a lot of my listeners will be other doctors, other healthcare professionals. And I think there's so much in those episodes that can teach them as well. I did an episode with Michelle Ackley on endometriosis 
And actually, you know, I knew endometriosis was quite common, but I didn't realize that one in 10 women are affected by it, which is the same as asthma. So as many women are affected by endometriosis in their menstrual years as they are asthma. And just hearing, you know, her account of it, and she sees herself as one of the lucky ones. I just think for healthcare professionals as well, listening to these conversations, it can make us better doctors. Yeah, especially for women. Don't you think? Like, there's just so many things. Like, I am loving the focus on menopause at the moment and particularly perimenopause. And I think, you know, it's shocking to me. We had Dr. Louise Newson on and she was saying, you know, the problem is, is that often GPs just aren't given the adequate training in these things. And we've seen a real shift in that because of the, I guess, the demand that has come from our patients. I would say it's very difficult now to find a GP that hasn't done some menopause training in the past 12 months. Because, you know, we are, it's constantly in my inbox that we get offers to do so much training, whether it's online or at events. So our inbox is constantly every day, there's probably, you know, come and do this training, do this training, et cetera. And there's been a lot of menopause training available. And I think, you know, with the, it affects half of the population, yet we as healthcare professionals for so long have not been doing a good enough job. So the tide is turning and that's great. And I think women's health in general, there was a big piece of work done by the government last year where they invited anybody, woman or man actually, to share their experiences with women's health, recognising that as a society, our healthcare system is designed for white men. So if you're a woman, you're not getting as good a service as a man. If you're a black person, you're not getting as good a service as a white person or if you're Asian. So it's amazing actually that they recognise that, you know, by recognising it, they then have to do something about it. So I feel like we're in a real moment of change, obviously, before we really reap the benefits and the rewards of that, it will take time. But I think endometriosis is another condition that for so long, women have just been told to shut up and put up. And I understand it 100 years ago when we didn't have treatments, there's nothing that could be done. That sort of British stoic attitude maybe served people well, but now there are treatments there are solutions. And whilst we might not have a cure for these types of conditions, nobody should suffer in silence or be told to just put up with it. So yeah, anyone out there is listening, if you have any health condition, but in particular, a women's health condition that's been bothering you and niggling you, go and get it checked out. And if you see somebody who isn't that sympathetic, ask to see somebody else and keep going until you get your symptoms recognised and you get the proper treatment. I don't know about you, but I feel like that's a real shift in our generation is advocating for our own health care. I think for a long time it was the doctors have the power and, you know, we we have to listen to them. I've seen a shift in people really advocating for their own care and doing a lot more, you know, self-care, a lot more sort of how can I fix this with lifestyle measures? Do you see that shift as well? Definitely, definitely. You often hear doctors saying, oh, you know, don't trust Dr. Google, don't trust Dr. Google. And whilst on the one hand, I agree with that, like maybe Google isn't the right place, but I do encourage people, if you think you have endometriosis, for example, go onto the NHS website, go onto patient.uk. If you're somebody who has scientific knowledge, go onto the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynecology website, look at the nice guidelines for that condition and do your research and print it off and take it to your doctor and say, I think I have this condition. Here's the reasons why. And look at that. The nice guidelines say, this is what should happen next. And I think whenever you are with a doctor, 
there are two experts in that room. Yes, the doctor is an expert in medicine and disease and all the rest of it, but you as the patient are the only expert in you and your voice is the most important voice in that room. So make sure that make sure that you say everything you want to say and make sure that it's been heard. And if not, go back. That's really good advice. How does someone do that without coming across as that you would approach that conversation like a partnership? Because I think it'd be really easy. I have done this. So you're going to be embarrassed to hear this, but I have gone in a little bit like, here's my knowledge and a bit sort of abrasive. And it didn't go well, obviously, because then suddenly you're in this like combative situation. You don't want that. How does someone advocate for themselves? Like what feels really good to you as a doctor where you're like, I really want to work in partnership with this person and help them get better? So let me tell you about Ice Ice Baby. When you're in medical school and you're taught your consultation skills, and you know, these are slightly different if you're a GP or if you're in hospital, you're taught to try and get a history from a patient in quite a structured way. But that first open question, which the doctor will often say something like, how can I help or what's happening? Or Really, that is your opportunity to talk and you shouldn't really be interrupted. Most patients talk for less than a minute but that's the patient's opportunity. And sometimes patients as doctors, you know, we're looking for certain bits of information and there's lots of stuff in there and, you know, we're time pressure and everything. And you're thinking, I don't need to know that. I don't need to know that. So we're filtering and we're sipping. But the most important bit of that is ICE. I stands for ideas, concerns, and expectations. So what we want to elicit from a patient is ideally at the end of that, if we haven't got it already, ideas. What do they think it is? What do you think as a patient think this is? Any concerns you have, like, you know, you've been having, I don't know, heartburn and you think it's cancer because a family member had that. But if you don't tell us, we can't reassure you because we might think, well, actually, that's not something that we're concerned about at all because this doesn't fit with the history and you're very young, for example. And then expectations. So that's what do you expect or what would you like to happen? So I think as a patient, the dream patient would come in to me and say, say, for example, let's use the example of endometriosis. Hi, doctor. Um, Yeah, I've been having some problems for a while and I think it might be endometriosis. These are the sort of symptoms I've been having. This is what's been going on. I'm also a bit worried that it could possibly be some form of endometrial cancer because my friend's mum had that and she had some weird bleeding and blah, blah, blah. And this has been going on and da, 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 da. And and what I'm hoping that you would do today is some blood tests and a scan because I've been reading the NICE guidelines and apparently to look for both of these conditions that I think it might be or that I'm concerned about. And then straight away, it's brilliant because I've got the information. Then I'm going to ask you loads of questions about your periods and all the rest of it. But I know what you're thinking. I know what you're worried about. And I know what you would like me to do. So even if actually at the end of that consultation, I don't think that the blood tests or the scan are the right thing to do at this stage, at least I know that. And I can say, for example, this is what I think we should do. But what I'd like to do is come back in a couple of weeks if this hasn't worked. And then at that stage, or I'll give you a blood test form now to use in two weeks if it's not better or blah, blah, blah. So I think sometimes when a patient comes in, And understandably, perhaps they're frustrated or upset because of what they've received before, or they've been listening to other people who've had bad experiences and they come in, a bit like I said, a bit stompy. I think straight away, it's nothing to do with us being doctors as two human beings. That interaction is already a little bit fraught, isn't it? I mean, you should receive any substandard care, 
But yeah, but do not be afraid to tell your doctor what you think it is, what you're worried about and what you would like to happen. I think that's so useful because we can prep that. We can write that little ICE down and we can prep it before we go in. So if, you know, you've got that minute and I know it's not time, but, you know, you can really make that focused and to prepare for it. And I think with our kids as well, you know, I think so many people have this experience, particularly in this sort of the toddler and the young children age where you are in and out of the GP a lot. And I think having that little focus, that little structure is going to be so, so helpful. And I think writing it down is such a good idea as well, because if you've got a piece of paper and there's things written on it, the GP can see, okay, we've got this. Part. It's kind of like lets us know that there's more stuff to come. In fact, if a patient comes in to see me with a bit of paper, I'll just say, oh, can I just have a little look? Straight away, I can absorb that information really quickly. And- yeah, way quicker. Also as well, for a parent taking in a child, like often mine will be getting fussy because they don't know this doctor. So then my focus is suddenly on trying to calm, you know, my little girl, whichever one it is. And then suddenly the doctor says, what's up? I'm like, oh God, okay. Uh, Whereas if I prepped for that, I think it could make it easier, couldn't it? Definitely. I think the work you do before you come into a consultation as a patient can make life so much easier for you and for the doctor and just mean you can get so much more done it can be much more fruitful because like you say I think sometimes if you take a little one in especially you know some children come in to see us as doctors and they've last time they were there they were there for the jabs or whatever and they just start screaming and often the parent is just like do you know what? actually I just want to get them out now I just want to get out so doctors we don't mind we're used to it we experience that all the time but yeah having written it down is a really great thing to do You know, sometimes if it's a child and straight away, you know, this is because it's a query infection. I've got my tools and my stethoscope and I'm waiting for my moments. And it might be, you know, normally we'll take a history and then examine. But sometimes I'm like, let me just, whilst they're cuddling you, mummy, let me just listen to the back of their chest because I can get in there right now. So yeah, writing it down, great idea. Yeah. And we were talking about women's health and I wanted to talk to you about you know, that postnatal period. I wanted to know how that was for you as a doctor, because I speak to so many professionals on this podcast and they often say to me, you know, I thought that because of what I did, I'd be more prepared or I'd know what to expect. And that wasn't the case. And I'm wondering, was that the case with you? What was it like that, that I call it the matrescence period, that process of becoming a mother? Oh my God. <laughs> The only way I can really describe it is a lot and a lot more than I anticipated. I knew it was going to be hard. I know being a mum is the hardest job in the world. I think I had a bit of a false sense of security, not so much that I'm a doctor, but I just think I thought, you know, I've gone through life and it hasn't always been the easiest. I've had challenges and perhaps more challenges than most of my friends, but I've always been able to get on with it and I've been quite resilient and, you know, whether it's come to schoolwork or sport or whatever, I've always been quite capable and able to do things that maybe found most things a bit easier than most other people. So I think I thought that would be the same with motherhood. I thought it's going to be hard. If everybody else can do it, I'll be able to do it. And oh my goodness, like what a shock. There were many times I thought, I'm just so bad at this. I just can't do this. I'm just not built for this. A lot of self-doubt a lot of anxiety. I was really, really anxious the first six months to the point now where I look back and think I probably wasn't okay, really. 
And yeah, I really struggled. And he's two, he's just turned two. And it's a whole new kettle of fish now, isn't it? A whole new set of challenges, but I'm definitely less anxious. But yeah, it really surprised me just how hard it is. And I think the lack of support as well. So Stuart, my other half is amazing, but we don't have any family nearby. We don't really have very close friends nearby. So it was just us. And, you know, we had a nanny one day a week who came in so I could get some work done and she'd sometimes do a bit of babysitting for us. But other than that, it was just us and it was full on. I'm so grateful. I'm always grateful when people are honest about it because just hearing those words from someone like you is just so, it unlocks so much compassion in me and in other people listening because it's like, we're not doing it wrong. It's really hard. And, you know, the moment I learned that word matrescence, which is like adolescence, right? The becoming of a mother and that it's time of huge brain changes, which does make us more anxious. The brain changes, the cortisol increases, the high alert increases, right? So we do feel more anxious and it is a really bumpy time. And I just wish, I just so wish that we were more prepared for it. Yeah, me too. And I think this podcast that we're recording right now, now that I am a mum, I hear lots of these conversations. I feel like I hear lots of people being really, really honest about how hard it is and the challenges of this progression to being a mother. I think before I had a baby, I don't know, I feel like all of us, we have a baby, like, why did nobody tell me? It's like, I think people did, but I think you almost just don't zone into it for some reason. It's really bizarre. But one of the things I didn't do, which I always say to my, in fact, I don't know if you've had them on, the people from Postpartum Plan, it's like a subscription and they help you prepare for the postpartum period during your pregnancy. Definitely something I should have done because I think you kind of see the end goal as being having the baby. That's just when it starts. I was so focused on the birth. Yeah. I forgot that I would, you know, <laughs> there's a lifetime after that. I'm going to bring this baby into this world safely and then boom, I'm done. Oh no. Then you're just beginning. And they have this little saying, which is something along the lines that when a baby is born, a mother is born too. And that mother is in need, that newly born mother is in just as much in need of care and love and nourishment and tenderness as the baby is. And actually, you know, they believe that it's the mother's job to look after and care for the baby. It's everybody else's job should be to look after and care for the mother. It's not how we see it, is it? Everyone's like, how's the baby? Is he feeding? Is he sleeping? Should be, how's the mother? Is she sleeping? Is she eating well? Is she getting some rest? And it's like that in other cultures. It really is like that in other cultures where, you know, a lot of cultures will have this 40-day sort of period where the mother doesn't leave the bedroom. She's just in there trying to establish feeding and everyone else is cooking her, like nourishing foods. It's just incredible. We've so devalued the role of not just mother caregiver, I think, in our society. And I think it's almost worse because not only have we devalued it, there's almost this sort of bounce back message which is, right, great, now you've had your baby, how quickly can you get back into your jeans and when are you going back to work? Like, what the hell? I fell for it like everybody else. On day five, I was in the pub, in a beer garden, because we'd just come out of lockdown. So at that time, we were allowed to be in beer gardens, but not inside pubs. 
and my dad was here. So we went to the pub. In fact, no, it was day three because it's Stuart's parents. Day three. Day three, you were out. In a beer garden with a bit of makeup on, with big sunglasses on, bawling my eyes out and pretending I was laughing, trying to put this like these rock hard, massive boobs in the middle of a beer garden, surrounded by people trying to get him to latch and thinking, what the hell am I doing? And on the way back from the pub, I just remember, it was like, I remember walking home from the pub and I got home and I said to Stuart, what is wrong with everybody out there? Everyone's so weird because I was so hypersensitive. There were a couple over the street having an argument and I was like, oh my God, oh my God, they're going to harm my baby. I think I saw a pigeon and thought that that was going to harm my baby. It's like, I just shouldn't be out of the house. What am I doing? And then it was day five that Stuart's parents arrived and I was like, oh, I'll just, I'll just go to Sainsbury's and get some food and left the baby and went to Sainsbury's. Stuart's mum came with me and then had a massive meltdown. Like, Stuart, I had to have that the baby on the camera as I was walking around the aisles whilst I couldn't concentrate. And it's just, I just shouldn't have been there. I should have been led in bed, being fed and watered. You know, like you say, in those other cultures where you only see a woman on her feet if she's going to the toilet. Having said that as a doctor, I must say, in those first few weeks after having a baby, you shouldn't lie in bed all day, every day, though, because you're in, God, there's the medical bit coming in, the serious bit, but you are at increased risk of a blood clot, a DVT or a PE. So you should get up and move and like walk around and move regularly. Don't lie in bed all day. But you definitely shouldn't be hosting. I remember day two. I had this advice as well. I had this incredible yoga teacher who was like two weeks, what did she say? A week in your bedroom and a week on the sofa. I was like, yeah got it and then like day two all the family came and I was making cups of tea for everyone I was like what am I doing I even know this and I'm still that people pleaser gotta get back gotta look like this hasn't impacted me was really strong in me I think it's been conditioned in us for so long the the films we've watched how we saw other people do it the things we've been told it's really deep conditioning so it's not surprising that we find ourselves battling that but I think it really does a disservice it really really does but I was like you I was so lucky that we had a doula I'm so glad we had a doula during my pregnancy it was actually the doula association that reached out to me to see if I'd be interested to work with them otherwise I wouldn't have done it and I'm so glad like it changed everything for me and they were the ones that warned us about this they said two weeks no visitors so so we told everybody we said like first two weeks just us no visitors and then you can come. But then what happened is because Lisbon came 10 days early and my dad was actually staying with us at the time. So whilst we booted him out of the house for the last couple of hours, he came back the next day and saw the baby. So it then seemed unfair for Stuart's parents not to be able to see the baby. And that's what happened there. So the same as you, I was prepared, but then I don't know, it's like once the baby's here, well, people have visitors. And, and do you know the thing, the, so many people send you flowers maybe and I don't want to sound ungrateful and thank you to anyone who's listening who did send me flowers but I remember that was one day just the straw that broke the camel's back I could smell some flowers that had gone off and I had flowers that hadn't been put in vases and with everything else I can't deal with these flowers (laughs) I've got a friend Steph who started a gifting company called don't buy her flowers because she had the same experience she was like my caregiving capacity is like over. I'm over. I can't even get these effing flowers in a vase. And then it's just another thing to have to take them out. Like she's like, let's not do that. Let's just send 
mugs of tea and cake and books and you know like a little care pack yes no it's been in touch recently because they do them for teenagers as well so they're going to do one with my book in it which is so lovely oh yeah that'll be really lovely so put your doctor hat back on you get the six-week check with new mothers and my six-week check was not great it was really focused on the baby I think it was something like we'll do baby and then right at the end it was like a sort of token how would you love that if you could like just wish and change it how would you love it to be and feel for new mum? I mean it makes sense that the baby check and the mother check are together in the same appointment but I almost think that it would be beneficial if they were separate there needs to be way more time so I think on that check we've got a long list of things that we need to check the baby for and often both the doctor and the mother sort of come in prioritizing the baby but actually I think what we know is that especially babies that have been born in hospital and they've already been checked over we do sometimes pick up things so it is important to be thorough but actually it's the mother that's probably more likely to need our help at that stage how it works at the moment how our guidance is for that is that there are certain questions that we ask to try and pick up if there's anything going on so we should definitely ask a mum about her mental health we should definitely ask about the physical health we should ask about how they're healing etc and then we are kind of dependent on the mum to tell us but that needs to change because what we know is that mums are just like yeah I'm all right because we think we're meant to be okay but we're not and I think there's A simple way, if you say to a mum, how are you doing with your mental health? She'll probably say, yeah, I'm all right. Okay. But she's not. I think if you say instead, now your mental health right now is definitely not going to be at its best, but how bad is it and how are you coping? Will I get an honest answer? If I would ask that question, I think it's really hard to understand what that means. Like a lot of people still wouldn't know how to check in on their mental health do they like it's so hard that question because it's like "Mm, I mean I'm not rocking in the corner psychotic I mean maybe someone is so I'm I guess I'm okay but actually I am experiencing intrusive thoughts but I'm not going to tell you that because I'm really worried that you might take my baby that's the most common fear isn't it and also I just think when I had my six-week check I wasn't okay no I wasn't okay I said I was I was not okay but I said I was okay because in that moment at that time I was like but I'm meant to feel like this. This is what everybody feels like. And I think sometimes because I'm a doctor as well, and perhaps when I see people, I see the full spectrum of people struggling with mental health, but I see much more at the more extreme end. I compare myself to the people think, well, I'm not as bad as them. I'm not as bad as that. So I must be okay. But I wasn't. So essentially what we absolutely need is to recognize this matter essence is huge it's massive physically emotionally mentally socially and therefore just the one appointment that's combined with the child check is not sufficient there needs to be a specific appointment for the mother maybe it's not with the doctor because this is the thing it's like well where's this resource going to come from maybe it's not with the doctor you know maybe we need to train up professionals within the healthcare service We have health visitors, we have midwives, but it's all very baby focused. Maybe this doesn't need to be somebody who is a midwife. Maybe it's somebody who is like a healthcare assistant grade, but their job is to check on mothers. It comes back to this system, doesn't it? This healthcare system, which hasn't actually been designed for women. And I think if women were designing it, I think if men gave birth and went through what we went through, 
then there's a be a big chunk, a big chunk of the NHS funding would be to support mothers in those first six months, but it's not. So it needs to be revisited and we need to look and we make, need to make sure that women are supported. I remember speaking to Stuart's mum and she said when she had her boys, they kept you in hospital for weeks. By the time you left, you've been taught how to bath your baby, you got you sorted with the breastfeeding, you've been given information and taught and shown how to do everything. Whereas now, you know, off you go. Well, I mean, I gave birth at home, so I didn't even have that. I didn't really even know how to change a nappy. No, what we didn't. I mean, luckily, my husband had looked after some of his cousins when he was like 12. So he was like, I'll do it. Because I honestly, I'd never even held a baby. How insane is that? I'd not, no, no, never. Maybe once or twice. Very rarely had I. That's what is not the way it should be. That's not how human, you know, humans, we are meant to be in communities and it's like that story recently which absolutely blew my mind of those four children that survived in the amazon jungle for a month and the oldest was nine survived a plane wreckage but as a nine-year-old who they're an indigenous family to the amazon rainforest it just impressed me so much to think that she was nine one of the children was a baby that was 11 well had their first birthday whilst they were trapped out in the literally in the amazon jungle with all the snakes and insects and wild animals and torrential weather etc but as a nine-year-old she had learned to know which plants were poisonous and what they could eat she'd learned to look after a baby and keep a baby alive and she's deemed actually quite mature now while there were loads of issues with that just makes me think you know we can reach the age of 30 and never have even held a baby because we're not meant to live the way we do confined to our own little houses it's crazy isn't it yeah it's completely unnatural and what blows my mind and it actually really helps me have compassion for myself when I struggle so much I'm like it's only recently if you think about the trajectory of human life it's only in the last what 100 150 years that we've done it this way as you say, we're living away from our extended family. Often one or two people might not know anyone else on their street, very little support. Like it's no wonder that we're seeing just huge increases in, you know, parental burnout, stress, maternal mental health challenges. It's not surprising. We're just not designed to do it this way. Well, no, I mean, I'm still waiting for this village. Where's this village? That's I, know, I know, I <laughs> know, I know. This came from the idea that, you know, not in that distant a history, we would raise our children in small communities of 50. And when the community got bigger than 50, it would break off into another one. So that's the village. But we live in a completely different societal structure today, don't we? There literally is no village. I did my medical elective in Tonga. And in Tonga, they're very religious and, and they all go to church on a Sunday and they're a church, you know, on every third street. And each family member gives money to the church depending on your wealth you're expected to get. And it's read out, you know, this family have given this much each week and it's redistributed. So there's no such thing that like they can't get their heads around homelessness because there's no such thing. But what I found really interesting is if you're a family on the street and you have five children, but you only have three bedrooms and your neighbours have two children and they have three, one of your kids will just go and live with them and they'll just bring them up. You know, they'll pop over every day and see you. But it's like the children almost belong to the street to the community it's a true village and whilst they are your children biologically everybody has a bit of a responsibility and will help out with them as well it's very interesting society they didn't have money so the king of tonga the past king of tonga 
for a very long time said, we don't want to have this money because when you do, people can get greedy. So it was all about trading. So you might trade three pigs for one chicken because actually the value of the pig versus a chicken depends on how much you need one or the other. So they just share everything. It's a really lovely way to see people like that true village life. And then you come back here and, you know, I've got neighbours on the street. We all have babies at the same time, but we see each other maybe once a month to get together. When I was growing up, you know, we used to spend a lot of time next door or with neighbours and there was much more helping out, you know, the other mums at school be like, I'll pick Zoe up on this day and you pick Jill up on that day. Whereas now we don't even do that. And it makes sense to me why it's like that, because, you know, with so many more dual income, dual working households, it takes time to foster relationships. And it's time that you haven't got because any time that you're not working, you're doing the domestic load, the mental load, the emotional load that work. It's the time squeezed for like popping in, you know, to go and connect to the neighbor is just non-existent. Yeah. And it's all organized and planned, isn't it? So I think, you know, my mum and the next door neighbor, they were very rarely in their houses on their own. They'd be rammed up together. Whereas I'm just thinking about the girls on the street who have babies the same age as mine, we, with WhatsApp, will plan. Next week on Wednesday, it's Kobe's birthday. So we're going to go to the park at five o'clock. Would you like to come? And that would be bizarre to go back and speak to our parents when we were little. We're like, well, why don't you just go around and speak to them? Just go and knock on the door. <laughs> and then you're getting that connection because, you know, you'll know this obviously, but there's huge studies now about the impact of loneliness. And I think those first couple of years of motherhood, you know, you're never alone you're often with your child your partner extended family or you're at work but for me it was such a time of loneliness and it's a bereavement as well isn't it it's a loneliness and also there's a bereavement because you're realizing that the you that you've always been the person you've always been is not gone because apparently when your child becomes five you become that person again but you can't be that person at the moment you can't go out and do the things you used to do And like you say, you kind of sat on your own, feeling lonely, trying to get to grips, not only with this new life, but with the new you and the new body. Yeah, exactly. That's why I just love this word so much, matrescence, because I think it just implies that it's this process. And it's like, imagine if we celebrated that transition, like you are different. I don't think you ever go back because I don't think you can go through a transformational experience like birth or you know, the grief of a miscarriage or the courage of round after round of IVF or, you know, adoption or surrogacy or however you come to start your family, it changes you. It strengthens you for sure. And it changes you and it changes your perspective. And I wonder if we do ourselves a disservice by trying to get back all the time. Yeah, I agree with that. I think this has been a big debate in our household when it's come to consideration of baby number two because I feel like when you have one I feel like I've been able to with the support of my partner become a mother but I've been able to keep a little connection with who I was before I think when I know that Lisbon's with his dad so I left him for the first time for three nights earlier this year and went on for a friend's 40th we went to Marbella I don't know. I feel like I, that cheeky, naughty, I won't say too much, but person that we used to be, it was different. I was in bed by 11 o'clock every night. We did day parties, but I felt like I was able to become her again. But it is different. But that's not saying that I lost the new side of me, the mother side of me. 
it's integrating, isn't it? And I think that's what we're not supported to do. Like that's really hard to do that, to integrate this new part of us with the core of who we are. And it's a process, like it's figuring that out. Well, I'm definitely still figuring it out. Oh my God, same. I'm like, oh, I'm trying to just figure it out. <laughs> I think everyone is just always trying to figure it out. But I think, gosh, all the conversations that I've had on this podcast over the last five years, there are so many things that can help but they're just not mainstream enough yet, I think. Yeah, I feel like we're the first generation of mothers who are really recognising that, yes, it's difficult, but we should be more supported. And, you know, the real struggles, it doesn't have to be that way and it shouldn't be that way. I think you're right. And there's just incredible campaigning going on isn't it for real change like in the workforce and at home and we really need it and I'm I feel really excited about the changes that are happening particularly for like generations that are coming up behind us I just don't think they'll stand for a lot of the shit that are well I think your little girls if they choose to have children when they're older I think you're right I think they will have a village of some sort or some description and I don't think they will put up with it Yeah, they won't. I mean, it's the same with the menopause. Like, we go full circle where we started. It's like, my mum, God, like, I can't imagine what she must have been going through. It was shameful. I remember she used to, like, whisper it. I'm going through the change. And she'd whisper. There was no sense of understanding about what that meant or support. And I just don't think our generation would, well, we're not standing for it, are we? We're not standing for it. We're not standing for it. But no, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. And I think, I think the same about my mum, actually. She used to do the same thing. Like, you know, she'd have her emotional wobbles and what have you. And she would say, it's because I'm going through the change. And we didn't really even understand what that meant. We were like, no, the change. Like, we couldn't even call it the... (laughs) It's incredible. Well, your new book as well just catches our girls young, which is just so powerful because when I read your book, I was like, oh my gosh, imagine if I'd have had some of this information when I was sort of 9, 10, 11, however old, it would have been really game-changing for me, particularly your chapters on privilege. I will be honest with you, Zoe, I did not understand privilege properly until I was at university. That is so bad. I was like 21. Well, why would you? I think people are still trying to get their head around. I think if everyone understood it now, because they don't, the world would be such a better place. It would. And your chapters on friendships because that's something that I really struggled with. And I think so many girls struggle with. I don't know a girl sort of, you know, in that sort of nine, 10 age group who doesn't have friendship struggles and challenges. It's often, I think for most girls, it's the first major breakup, isn't it? It's the first heartache when you fall out with a friend, because at that age, your friends are everything. They're your entire world and you actually love them. And yeah, I think we all experience fallouts and friend breakups and it can be really, really challenging. So I think that's what my aim with the book really was to create a resource. Like It is exactly that. It's the book I wish I'd have had when I was growing up, but it's been written for girls growing up today because I think they face additional challenges to what we did with the world of social media and also the fact that they have access to information at their fingertips, which we didn't. In the book, I have these little overshare moments. So I share how I wanted to know more about the vagina and how tampons work. So once a month when my mum had the tampons packet out, I used to read the leaflet over and over again. (laughs) 
because it had a little picture of the vagina and where a tampon goes. I was like, wow, this is fascinating because there's nowhere else to access that information. But more than anything, as well as educate, I want the book to empower, empower girls to know their own bodies, love their own bodies, love themselves for who they are, have confidence, have good self-esteem and not be taken advantage of by other people, but also to understand things like privilege. And it's an opportunity to instill a little bit of kindness into the world by just helping them understand a bit about privilege and about, you know, bullying is so common again. And whether you're the bully being bullied or actually someone who's observing it, we can all play a role in making the world a bit better. I gave my copy away because I was like, I've got to give this to my friend's daughter who is 10. But when my oldest is seven, she will be like, I'll be reading it together with her. And my friends have said they've been reading it with their daughters as well, which is so nice. What a connecting moment to have a resource that you can start a discussion with. My friends who've read it have said that they've learned quite a lot from it. In fact, I learned, I learned quite a lot writing it. There were things when I was researching and when I was writing, especially some of the little prescriptions that I've put in there, which are these actionable tasks. I've taken some of them on board myself, but you know, some of the research around how pulling a power pose, like the way we approach the world with our physical bodies can actually change the way we think and feel. I found that really fascinating. And, you know, I've taken on board some of the little self-help activities that I've put in there. Because I think if I could give myself one word of advice when I was little to little Zoe, it would be to treat myself with as much love and respect as I treat other people that I care about. Because I think as girls, we have that negative voice, don't we? when really we need to just be our own cheerleader. Yes, and I think we teach people pleasing young and we know that it is gendered. It is gendered, that behaviour. It's just mind-blowing when you read the studies on it, isn't it? So I love the book and I really encourage everyone to gift it or buy it if you've got little girls of that age. Thank you. I always ask the same question at the end, which is if you could give one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? So I've been thinking about this and I'm thinking about all the mothers in the world and it got me thinking about, I mean, the challenges we face here are very different to the challenges that mothers face in other parts of the world, but perhaps they don't have the same challenges that we have. So what would I give to every single mother? I think it would be to feel the respect and recognition that they deserve for doing what genuinely is the hardest job in the world. I think there are mothers in other countries, perhaps in developing countries, where they don't hear this message that we hear that mothering is hard and we should be more supported. And they don't, you know, there was something I saw recently about women who breastfeed their babies over the course of a year. It was a similar number of hours that the baby's attached to you as somebody who's doing a full-time job, like 20 hours less over the course of a year that's the time that you actually are taking out of the world. You're sat, you can't. So I think, yeah, I think it would be for all mothers to understand and feel the recognition and respect that they should for the hardest job in the world. Because I definitely get much more respect and recognition for being a doctor than for being a mother. But being a mother is harder. Yeah, it doesn't make sense, does it? No. I'm sure you do. I'm sure you get so much praise and recognition and people say, what a wonderful podcast. And your podcast is amazing. But actually, the job you're doing of being a mother is more amazing. And everyone's just like, it's just mother, isn't it? Yeah. And I think that's why 
it's complex, isn't it? But I often wonder if that's why, you know, I remember going back to work and feeling like so much better. And I figured out that's because I was getting validation. And so much of my esteem was based on that external validation. So I found it really hard to feel respectful of myself because I was like, I'm not achieving anything. I completely was. I was achieving, you know, gosh, that first year or however long it was at home. You know, it's a great achievement, but I wasn't valuing it for myself. Felt like I wasn't doing anything. And that's societal. That's just what we've been taught and told. It's insane to me how I, you're right, how I get more validation for this than I do for being an in, incredible mother. It's just triggered a little thought of an episode of Bluey. You watch Bluey? Yeah, of course. It's the one where Bluey's being competitive about crawling and at the end it's the poodle mum comes and sits with her and shows her that she's got about eight children and she just looks and she says and you're doing a fantastic job by the way oh well I mean I'm, I'm welling up here now just thinking about it it's just like and that's all that that was that was one mum giving her validation for her parenting and why don't we all have that so I think that, I guess that's a message to everybody who's listening if you know somebody who's recently had a baby or just has a young child or just has a child, remember to say, oh, you know, you need books, fantastic, but gosh, you're doing a brilliant job of parenting. And it feels like the best thing in the world, doesn't it? I mean, it's very rare. Normally you get advice or judgment in my experience. (laughs) It's very rare that someone will just say, oh my gosh, you handled that so well. Like I would just like be beaming with like, wow, we just don't do it enough, do we? No, I was just chatting with one of my friends the other day who's just come back from Spain on a flight with two young children and her youngest, turns out he had an ear infection. He screamed the whole plane journey. And she was saying like just how awful people were to her, smirking and tutting. And, you know, how about somebody just come up to her and just said, gosh, this is really, really hard, but you are handling this so well. That would have meant so much to her, I'm sure. So it completely changes your nervous system, right? You would calm down and then you, you know, who knows what would, that the impact that that would have on, on the child. On around. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I've loved this chat. What a joy to connect. So good. I feel like we've just touched on so many beautiful and important topics. I guess the book is just available everywhere and then they can see you on this morning, can't they? Yes, I'm on this morning on Thursdays. The book is called You Grow Girl and it's available in all the usual places. Podcasts, the doctor will hear you now. Again, available on all various different podcast platforms. And then I'm at Dr. Zoe Williams on Instagram. Gosh, there's so much going on right now. Yeah, it's like when you list off your own platforms, you're like, oh my gosh, this is a lot. (laughs) But above all else, I think I'm doing a reasonably good job of raising my child as well. There we go. I'm going to give myself some, no, I'm doing a very good job of raising my child as well. Give myself some validation. Do you know what, Zoe? You're doing amazingly. Thank you. You too. You too. I think that's the other thing is I make this intentional now. I say I'm in doing an incredible job as a mother because it's so rare to hear people, women say that. So I'd say it now in order to like, you know, make myself get comfortable with that. Like I am doing an incredible job. You're doing an incredible job. We all are, but we just don't hear people say that to ourselves or each other. There's the challenge. That's what we need to do to ourselves, but also to other mums. Let's just normalize 
recognizing just what an incredible job we're all doing because it is I think that validation it really really hits deep doesn't it and that's what we need because we can be so self-critical and search for the negatives and search for the things and we live in this world of comparison where you know you're online and you're seeing oh with this family they just went here and they did that and the child down the street's younger than mine but he's putting three words together and let's just focus on how amazing we are doing instead 100% oh thank you so much thank you So that was the episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. If you did, please do share it. We have grown this podcast with just our listeners sharing it. So please do continue to help me get the amazing wisdom out there. So many mothers need to hear these messages. So open your WhatsApp and just share it in your mum group or with a friend. I really appreciate it. And I will see you back here on Monday for our moment clip where we share a really powerful idea, tool or concept in under 10 minutes that will help you have a better week. I'll see you on Thursday for our in-depth expert interview. And I'll see you on Friday when we chat to one of you, our Mother Kind community. Thanks for being here. I'll see you next time.